Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. We are going to need all our time to be in God's Word, so why don't you grab a Bible, take it, if you have one, take that out. If not, there should be one under the seat in front of you. We are only going to be in two of the Gospels today. Uh, Luke and John are silent on these issues. So we're going to be tracking through Mark, and anywhere I deviate from there, it will be Matthew's opinion. So if you could turn with me to Mark chapter 6, verse 53. We are in part 44 of our Being Jesus series, and I entitled this morning's message, Breaking Through Unbelief and Rewarding Faith. And so I'd like to welcome everyone watching online, also in on-site Rockland. Hi to you. And we are going to dive right into this. Take out the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and I can draw your attention to the fill in the blank. But let me give you a couple thoughts first. The Bible says that we are to be in the world, but not of the world. What does that mean? Now, shockingly, there are things in the world that are not godly. Hey, wow, that was new. You came all the way here for that. That was, is anybody surprised by that? No, come on. There's a ton of influences and stuff in this world that's not encouraging towards the Lord. Yeah. I mean, there's flat out messed up stuff. There's, there's, you know, whacked people. There's odd advertising. There's, there's devilish concepts. I mean, there's a lot of bizarre stuff in the world that would draw us away from God. We know that. So when he says we should be in the world, it does mean that we are not to sequester off in a monastery somewhere where we put everyone in the world on the other side of the wall. I mean, we are to engage. We are called salt and light for a reason. We are to have friendships. We are to love on. We are to take care of. We are to minister to people that don't think like we think. All right. The whole, the whole point is to go out there and love on everybody. So no, it's not okay to just be completely separate. However, in that process of being in the world, We're not to be of the world. We're not to embrace and absorb everything they do. We are not to allow them to infect us. We are to love on them. How do you do that? How do you walk that line? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of crazy. The, the key thing here is, is watching your influences. There are some things that influence you more than others. The idea that you uh, maybe um, are walking down the street and there's a billboard, maybe that's one type of influence, but having a best friend that thinks the whole God stuff is garbage is a different influence. So maybe the first area that we should look at is choosing our friends wisely. Right, we got to choose our friends wisely because as much as we would love to influence them, they are doing the reverse to us. And I wonder how many of our friendships should be more ministry focused as opposed to absorption. I, I know that we would always like to think that it is only the pristine parts of our relationship that get transferred back and forth, but I think we're all smart enough to know that's not true. There's some, there's some rough influence going back and forth. And it's not just on the idea of believer, non-believer. I'm talking about believers. I'm talking about there's friends that you got to be real careful of to hang out with. There are some believers that though Jesus Christ may have rescued and saved them, they are filled with bitterness, cynicism, anger, wrath, gossip, problem, right? I mean, literally you're hanging out with them and you're diminishing every time you hang out. The, the nastiness, the, you know what, God probably doesn't even do anything and everything's terrible and, and it's just constant negative bombardment all the time. Everything's wrong with the world. Everything's wrong with the church. Everything's wrong with everybody. That's going to wear on you. What's the point? The fill in the blank in front of you. Beware of those who diminish your faith. Beware of those who diminish your faith. If you remember a number of weeks ago, I I shared that C.S. Lewis's opinion was this. He said, faith and reason are on one side. They're one team. We always go, well, maybe my reason is attacking my faith. I should just have blind faith. No, no. You have faith in something that your reason has designed out you should have faith in. In other words, if there's a God, you should trust him. That is reason putting faith on top of reason. That's how it's supposed to go. 
However, on the opposite side, what takes away from that is moods, emotions, drives, distractions. We are leaky vessels. We can leave church completely pumped up. And by the time we get home, we can't even remember what the guy talked about. You know what I'm saying? I mean, we can leave completely motivated to live a holy life. And by Wednesday, we're completely lost in sin. It, how is it that we're, we, it's like we have Swiss cheese for a soul. You know what I'm saying? It's like this stuff just pouring out of us going, man, I thought I poured in a whole bunch. Why am I so empty? Why does it seem like it takes so little to get me so far away? We, one of the biggest words that was used in the book of Deuteronomy is remember. Where God always calls his people, remember me. Remember what I did. Remember Why? Because distractions make us forget. You don't remember. Literally, you can go one week away from a miracle and doubt that miracle ever happened. I mean, your mind will re-sift it and re-sort it, and you will find out some way out of the moment to go, I think that was bogus. How does that happen? All I know is that it does happen, and our atmospheres really, really impact us. So you've got to watch out for teachers that completely crush your faith. You've got to watch out for friends that completely crush your faith. You've got to watch out for writings and books that completely crush your faith. Those are not helpful. If it's making you love and trust God less, we have a problem. Does that mean we should only read positive stuff and this and that? No, no, no. I'm talking about we believe here that our entire lives should be transformation into the image of Christ. Whatever's driving that, we win. Whatever's decreasing that, and it can be, sometimes it needs to be pretty rough, pretty harsh, pretty tough. Sometimes it's encouraging and life-giving and exciting and fun. It's a big mixture. What I'm saying is what is leading you towards knowing God and what is detracting you? This is what I'm saying. Now, what I'm going to walk through is a series of stories all within the same era in Jesus's life where Jesus walks outside of Israel. That's a big deal. We all know that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. As a matter of fact, it's even thicker than that. So let me begin. We're going to start out. We're going to be reading in Mark. Once again, anywhere I deviate, uh, we'll be referring to Matthew. But it begins like this. When they crossed over, they're in the Gentile area. When they crossed over after the walking on water incident, they came to land at Gennesaret and they moored to the shore. They're out of Israel proper territory. They're out of the heavy Jewish area. I shouldn't even say Israel proper per se, but it's a Gentile area. It's a non-Jewish area. And the reason why this is such a big deal is because of the mandate. Jew first, then Gentile. If you're new to the church, it might be helpful to understand the Bible if you understand that phrase, Jew first, then the Gentile. Real quick show of hands, the reason why I'm going to kind of bring this in and I'll talk a little bit about it. Quick show of hands, how many of you did not grow up in a religious environment? Okay, a good amount of you. All right, all right. Keep that in mind as we move through. Here's what's fascinating. Why is it Jew first, then Gentile? Why is it go to the Jewish people, then we'll get to the non-Jewish people? Why is that? It's because God is a God of his word. Thousands of years ago, God selected a nobody by the name of Abraham. And he said, through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. What do you think he meant? I think he meant exactly what he said. Through the Jewish people, and indeed, the Messiah was always going to come through the Jewish people. Through, because through Abraham comes the Jewish race, and through them, they would be on the dramatic stage of life. They were the ones to communicate God's will to mankind. They were the ones by which the conduit that God was going to breathe life, the gospel, going to breathe life, uh, salvation. He was going to breathe the Messiah all through the Jewish people. 
And when he said, I'm going to use this, and I understand you guys are going to take a lot of hits and everything's going to be rough, but I need you to know if I make you a promise, I'm going to make you a promise. If I'm going to do a great work in this world, it's going to be through the Jewish people. When he makes that mandate, we know that when Jesus arrives, he always does only what the Father says. What does the Father say? Jew first, then Gentile. How is Jesus' ministry designed? Jew first, then Gentile. That's it. You're going to hear that come up over and over and over. So what does it look like when he starts walking outside of the Jewish areas? Now he's in somebody else's turf. Now he's in someone else's neighborhood. Now he's in someone else's area where he's going to walk around as the Jewish Messiah in a non-Jewish area. How are they going to respond to him? It's almost like if I was a religious figure raised up in religiousness, around religiousness, And all of a sudden I start walking around in a world that has no idea about religion. How would they respond? Well, this is fascinating. Watch what Jesus does. It says, and when they got out of the boat, that's Jesus and his disciples, the men of that place immediately recognized him and ran about and they sent around to all the whole region and began to bring all the sick on their beds to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. As many as touched it were made well. How'd they respond? Pretty good. They mobbed this guy. Literally, it says that as he's trying to get away with his disciples, and some scholars suggest this trip north out of Israel is going to last eight months with his disciples to front load and get them completely locked in with him before they go on their march to Jerusalem where everything falls apart and hits the fan. That he's going to have precious time with them. He's going to have quiet time with them. But even as they travel around the north outside of the Jewish region, he is mobbed. They can't seem to go anywhere. People are grabbing all the sick and they're, you know, they're laying them on the thing, trying to get in his way and trying to catch his attention. And, and everybody wants to be around this guy. That's a pretty good reaction. And what do they want? They, they said, if only we could touch the tassel, the woven tassel on the bottom of his robe. Boy, I know for sure that's got to be non-religious people. Why? Because if Religious people know enough to argue with that and say, that's not how it works. Oh, we got so much baggage. We'll sit there and argue and go, hold on. Everybody knows Jesus doesn't empower clothing. Come on. You got to touch his skin. That's the only way it works. That's how I was raised. That's how it's supposed to be. That's how I was taught. Notice they got no background at all. Here's what's so fascinating. You walk into church and all of you that come from a religious background, you're analyzing and tripping over every word I say. All of you that grew up with no religious background, everything I say, you go, all right. <laughs> like, I don't know, right on, let's do that, whatever that is. I mean, if we're talking about Jesus, yeah, let's go. Let's talk about Jesus. Never heard that before. It sounds awesome. And then everyone else is like, well, you know, you said that wrong and that's not quite what you mean. And I don't know about the theological implications of that and blah, blah, blah. And you're just so locked in all this baggage of the past that if if Jesus brings in anything that disagrees with you, it's kind of, that's not right. You sure? All they want to do is touch the fringe of his garment. They don't even need to get fully next to him. They're just saying he is so legit That if I can just get next to him, there's a clamoring just to be next to God. And they're not going to allow all these other hangups to keep them from getting next to God. I think God's here. Let's go see him. And I don't care how, well, I'm just going to go next to him. I just got to be next to him. I got to be next to him. That's awesome. Now, one thing I do want to give as a caveat is the phrase, and all who touched it were made well. Some people may be reading this and they go, well, that means everybody gets healed all the time. How come I'm not healed? I must be broken. There's something wrong with me. Okay, so I know that not everybody's got a chance to hear some of my recent teachings on the supernatural. And and just a side note on that, uh, people have asked me a lot of time, Lance, why are you focusing so much on the supernatural? Why keep talking about healing? We get it, dude. You already talked about that. Can we talk about something else? No. And here's why. Because we're in the Gospels. If I'm going to read through the Gospels, and it's a two-year series on the Gospels, guess what we're going to talk about? Jesus and the supernatural, because that's what's in the Bible. Uh, It's not like I'm trying to agitate you. I'm not trying to irritate you. I'm trying to merely teach through the Gospels. So we keep running into that, right? 
And in that, we have to say, are all people healed? If you haven't heard my teaching on that, I'm going to tell you my opinion. And this is just my opinion. Other brilliant people disagree with me. My opinion is no. And I don't think that in the Bible says that they're all healed. You well, just said it right there. No, no, no. There are times when God is doing a special work in a special area and he cleans house. Absolutely. But if you know the story of the pool of Bethesda, Jesus goes and heals one guy in a whole herd of sick people, steps over all the other sick people, heals one guy, and then bails out before anyone knows he's there. Don't tell me that Jesus healed everyone he came in contact with. That is simply not biblical. However, he healed everyone recorded that came to him and asked to be healed. I get that argument. What I'm saying is they were recorded for a reason. But what we need to understand is if you are prayed over, if you ask your heavenly father to be healed and you're not healed, that does not mean he doesn't love you. That's what I have to lock down. Before we go anywhere else, you're going to go, well, maybe I'm broken. You are broken. We're all broken. There's nobody that's not broken. So if you start going, well, maybe I messed up. You probably did. That's my way of affirming you. Praise the Lord. No, of course you did. We all did. That's the point. And that's all right. God knows that we're broken. God knows that we messed up. God knows that things aren't right. His not healing you is not an indicator of his love. He loves you total. Here's the way that we need to pray is that we need to understand every time you pray, it's a different atmosphere because God has done a work since the last time you prayed. And so he sometimes needs to minister to other parts of you and get other things across. So he'll do all these different layers and he's working and moving things and and changing all of history and he's altering the universe and he's moving all these things. So the next time you pray and you go, dad, how about now? It's a completely different setup. And then he goes, not yet, kid. Boom, boom, boom. And he starts sliding and moving everything around. Then you go, how about now, dad? Not yet. What I'm trying to explain is those are not indicators that he doesn't love you. They are not indicators of his attention. They're not indicators that he doesn't see your pain. They are merely indicators that it's not best right now. And we need to trust him. And we need to... So when you read this, please read it in context. Not everybody gets healed all the time. But sometimes they do. And that's okay. It says... And Jesus arose and went away. At some point in this trip, he's about 30 miles out of Capernaum, his home base. So he's way, way up there. And he went from there to the region or district of Tyre and Sidon. Now, this is an interesting place in the world. If you picture a map of the Middle East and you know anything about it, there's a Mediterranean Ocean. And then on the right hand side of the map, there's a little tiny Israel right on the coast. Now, above Israel are a couple places like Lebanon, Syria, Turkey, right? That, that's where we are in the world. Up in that Syria region, Lebanon region, we have Tyre and Sidon. They're two cities that were kind of sister cities. Tyre was more famous. They were a coastal natural fortress. So they're always hard to take over. So they became famous for that reason. And they were also famous because they were kind of the hub of the Phoenician people, the seafaring people. Most historians believe that the Phoenicians were kind of the ones that got seafaring going. They, everyone else that kind of floated boats hung out by the shoreline. They kind of go, well, I can ship, I can sail as long as I can see land. And if I can see land, I'm good. But if I start going away from that, away from land, I'm going to get lost. And who knows what's going to happen? Whereas the Phoenicians looked up and said, wait, 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 the stars are kind of the same. Why aren't we tracking by those? They started going long distances. So when they start bringing trade, they become very popular. Everybody wants to hang out with Phoenician peoples and they rose in power and authority. This is where Jesus was. And you go, so why is that important? A couple side notes. They're outside the Jewish area, but according to the charts that Joshua and Moses drew, it's part of the promised land. Because the different tribes, there's 12 tribes of Israel, they all got different pieces of property. The tribe of Asher got Tyre and Sidon. The problem was they never finished taking it over. So they never owned it. 
They didn't get the job done. They didn't finish underneath Joshua to conquer the land God told them to conquer. So it's unconquered promised land. And Jesus is going, in my world, I can walk anywhere I want. This is my land too. This is my land too. This is my, and I will go and I will do ministry in all my land. Doesn't matter whether or not you took it or not. I'm taking it right now. And he's walking around in this region. This is a Canaanite region. When the Jews came in to try to take over the promised land, they called all the people in the whole area Canaanites, even though there was no place called Canaan. You know what I'm saying? They just called them all Canaanites and that you would have the Hivites and Jebusites and Anakites and all these different little groups in there, but they were all called Canaanites and it was always Jews against the Canaanites during the Joshua era. Why does that matter? Because of what happens next. It says... And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Remember, he's trying to get away with his disciples, yet he could not be hidden. He's too popular. But behold, seriously, check this out. Immediately, a Canaanite woman from that region whose little daughter had a demon, an unclean spirit, heard of him, came out, fell down at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter and was crying, have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he didn't answer her a word. What? Jesus just ignored a desperate mom. Now moms is where we're all supposed to get offended. What are you going to do for your kids? Whatever it takes, right? So now you have the compassion of Jesus going head to head with a mandate of the father. You go, what, what are you talking about? The most common adjective, descriptive term for Jesus in the New Testament is compassionate. There's no way this doesn't matter to Jesus. He is like a walking sponge absorbing everyone's pain. He gets it. He sees it. He knows it. Now he has a mom who's trying to intercede for her daughter who's being tormented by the enemy. That's not going to arouse his interest. And yet he completely ignores her. Why? Mandate. What's the mandate? Jew first, then Gentile. She's a Gentile. What do I do? I do what my father tells me to do. And there's all this tension in the room. So now how is Jesus going to navigate this situation by which the will of the father is done and at the same time, compassion is done by God? Watch how he masterfully does this because he's about to draw his disciples into the process. He's going to get them to observe and watch what he does. And this is kind of a trip. This is where you need to import your kind of view of Jesus. Now let's have a disclaimer here. Everybody colors Jesus like themselves. Here's what I mean. If I was to tell, I say, now tell me what Jesus is like, like personally, you would describe him as the best version of you. Okay. So for example, if you're organized, you're like, first of all, Jesus had post-it notes everywhere, right? I mean, he, he was always writing down lists. He was checking stuff off, you know, did I get Peter check? You know, it's that kind of stuff. And what about the fact if you are like melancholy, like you're all eeyore out and you're just like, whoa, riding this whole thing. And you're always like, it's such a gloomy day. Then you're like, then you're like, you know what? Jesus was a man of many sorrows. Says it right here, man. He was crying all the time. <laughs> and then if you're charismatic, it, meaning in personality and you're like, Jesus grabbed the, you know, huge crowds. He's a fantastic storyteller. He's just like, well, what was Jesus like? I have no idea, but we all tend to make him just like us. I'm going to do that right now because I think he was just like me, right? And here's why I believe that Jesus exercised the gift of sarcasm. And I believe that he was, I believe that he was witty and there's a little shiny look in his eye. So whenever he would say something that felt like he got punched in the face, you're like, but I still like him. He's a nice guy. Surely he didn't mean to punch me that hard, right? Watch how Jesus does this. It says he's ignoring this woman and his disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she's crying out after us. What's that point? Jesus, she's irritating us. Stop it. Just heal her daughter and let her move on. You know, you can. The whole idea that you're blocking her out. This is weird. Just heal her because it's like, ah, ah, ah. she's constantly talking to me. Like get her to stop talking. She's yelling and I don't like messy ministry. Can we just have everything quiet and everything neat and everything in a nice little package? And this woman, yeah, just get her out. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Shuts down the next request. No, Jew first, 
We are on a Jewish mission. We're not doing this Gentile thing. And they're like, oh, drag. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. So you got to understand, even though they're not in a Jewish area, they're in a ancient world area, which means women do not have the rights that men have. And yet somehow this woman is blowing off everything else and she's going to get in front of Jesus. I mean, this is talk about tenacity. It was like, I will be face to face with the Messiah. And she looks at him in the eye and she's begging him, please help me. And this is where you have to interject how Jesus handles this scenario. I'll tell you how I see it. And he said to her, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. That sounds really harsh. (laughs) I mean, I don't, you know, you kind of go, I don't care how you bake it. Still rough, right? I mean, because really calling someone a dog was, was, was an insult. I mean, it's a a teardown because as much as in America, we kind of have, you know, puppy dogs and and there are pets and everything. There are some areas of the world where dogs are not sweet and cute. They're like nasty. They're like going to attack you. They're wild scavengers and they carry disease. And so you train your kids. Don't get anywhere near a dog, right? I mean, that's, that's a real life for a lot of people, especially in the ancient world. And so when you would, you would refer to somebody as a dog, you were telling, you were calling them gross and, and, and defiled. So how in the world is this supposed to be loving? Cause we know that Jesus is loving. Well, here's what's interesting. This is where language matters. There's two ways in the language that Jesus was using to refer to dogs. There was one word for street dogs and there was one word for lap dogs, little pets. Which word did he use? The pets. So here's actually how it would sound. She would come up and she'd say, please help me. And he said, all right, listen, let the children be fed first. It's not good to take my kid's food and give it to the puppy dogs, my puppy dog. Like, come on. This is not for you right now. Now, when he does that, is there a glimmer in his eye? Because she still won't give up. Is there an opening? Is there an open door? Is there a little bit of a smirk on his face going, I'm throwing you a riddle, kid. What are you going to do with this? Because if you do not fully understand me, you're going to walk away bitter and resentful and angry. If you see me, if you're looking at me, if you're listening to me, you understand I'm opening the door to you. And I'm being playful with my words. And even though I'm spinning around truth, I'm also referring to you in an affectionate term. I am bringing you in. How is she going to respond to that? She is undaunted by denial. She's already been shut down by Jesus from a distance. She's already been shut down by the disciples and told to be quiet. She's already been shut down by Jesus again personally. And she won't give up. He spins out this riddle and she fires right back at him. This is a quick lady. It says, but she answered him, yes, Lord, you are absolutely right. You're right. We are not supposed to give the kids food to the dogs. I'm with you. Yet even the dogs, even the little puppy dogs under the table, eat the children's crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now that's wit right there. She was like, took it, zing, pow, threw it right back at him. And he was like, yes, that's what I'm talking about. How do we know that? Because of his response. And Jesus answered, oh, woman, great is your faith. Like, wow, you got it. That's what I'm talking about. And the disciples are like, he always says we have little faith. How come he said she has great faith? What is wrong with this? That was the point. Is he explodes in this joy of, yes, that's what I'm saying. You got it. You rolled with it. You didn't give up. You didn't just say, well, he must not love me. You know that even though I got my father's will to carry out, I still love you. Even though you know that I'm not giving you a yes answer right off the bat, you're not going to cave and give up. Even though you know that maybe I'm focused on something else right now, I do love you. In the moment that I can answer your prayer request, I will because I am for you maybe that's what's going on and he said yes 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 this is what i want from you he said be it done to you as you desire for this statement you may go your way the demons left your daughter and the daughter was healed instantly and she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone you understand he just healed a demon from a distance he just cast a demon out with a thought who is this man Oh, that's right. He's God. You always go, well, the demon has to be in the area. And we religious folks, we all know that you can't possibly cast out a demon if the demon's not in the room. So you got to get the demon and then maybe you even have to open a door so the demon can get out. And you got to, you know, and you got to kind of do all that. And you're setting up all this stuff. 
But the person who doesn't have any religious background is like, awesome. And they're just all fired up. Sweet. Demon's gone. Let's go. Woo. And now she didn't care about any of the religious rules. She was like, you're the king. I need my daughter healed. And he said, yes. And it was gone just like that. Incredible. Incredible. Do you realize that we are the little puppy dogs of today? That we are getting the crumbs that fall off the Jews table? Do you understand that, that the kids, as it goes, that only when the Jews rejected their Messiah, did it open up to the Gentiles in that way? And now we got to be part of the family. But do you understand that we were brought in even partly to make the Jews jealous because God's heart is still for the Jewish people. And he keeps luring them back in going, look, we're having fun over here. And the, and the Jews are supposed to want to come and hang out again, right? And, and, and welcome the whole idea of the concept of the Messiah of Jesus. And, and, but here's the deal. God's not done with the Jews. Is His heart is still there at all times. He's still watching His people. They're still precious in His sight. He's still loving on them and drawing them and working with them. And, and He's not going to give up. He is a God of His Word. And so if He told them that He had a love for them, if He told them that He was going to rescue them, He's going to continue working with them. If God didn't keep His Word to the Jews, why should we assume He's going to keep His Word to the Gentiles? Oh, we're grafted in the family but just make understand what our spiritual heritage is, yeah? We honor the Jewish people. It moves on. It says, Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to walk beside the Sea of Galilee. So he's going further north. In the region of the Decapolis. Now that is ten free Greek cities. Um, non, Non-Jewish, that's all we really need to know. And they brought him to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him and taking him aside from the crowd privately, not one-on-one, but in a small group, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue, looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, and that is in Aramaic, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Is that how you want me to pray for you after service? (laughs) Pastor, I'm having a little problem with... (laughs) Come on, bring it in. <laughs> and you're like, I'm good. No, that's all right. I'm going to go to the prayer corner today. Because here, here's the other funny thing. If you're religious, you know that's not how Jesus heals people, right? Because if you're religious, there's nothing weird like that that needs to happen in church. There's nothing uncomfortable because that's not how God does it. See, because what really he needs to do is you know, understand that from Scripture that if Jesus just wanted to say a word or you know, there was just a nice little movement or something like that, that's all Jesus needs to heal. This whole messiness, this whole business about, oh, now I'm going to spit on things and touch people. I'm sticking my fingers in their ear. That's just all weird. And we don't need any business about the weirdness because that's not how God does it. This guy doesn't have any religious background, so he's like... Hey, right on. Let's do it. You got, uh, what you got for me? Why is he sticking his fingers in his ears? Now, a lot of this we're just speculating, right? But here's kind of what I'm thinking. This guy can't hear and he can't talk. So how does he engage with his world? He's going to have to engage with his world through his other senses. Yes. One of those senses is tactile touch. So if I'm going to pray over your ears, you either have to not hear me and wait, or you can be part of the process. And if you're part of the process, shouldn't I engage you with touch? Should I not then say, listen, dude, you can't hear me, but I'm touching your ears. Why? That's where we're praying for, right? So I'm going to touch your ears right now. What else do you need prayer for? Your tongue. All right. And in that day, spittle, they believe had a, a healing agent to it. So it wasn't quite as creepy as we think it was. And he's like, so what else needs help? Your tongue, right? Open your mouth. I'll touch your tongue. Why? Because I'm praying for your ears and I'm praying for your tongue because you can't hear a word I'm saying. And I want you engaged in the process. I want you to realize I'm going to lift out what I just touched up to my father and watch what happens. And this is what it said. He looked up to heaven. He sighed and he said, be opened. And he was all good. Why was he looking up to heaven? Because that's where the father is. And he only does what the father tells him to do. Only what the father empowers him to do. Only what the father directs him to do. And so he looks up. He says, father, you've given me this authority. Here we go. And he commands, you're good be opened. And his ears and tongue were opened. And Jesus charged them 
to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he's done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. And he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet and he healed them. So the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled, healthy, the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Even though the purpose of miracles varies from situation to situation, what is the overarching principle on why God does miracles? Glory to God. What does that mean? It means that if we become more fascinated with the healing of our physical bodies than the God who allowed our bodies to be healed, we have a problem. But in the same way, if we become more obsessed with our disease and our dysfunction than the God who loves us, we have a problem. What's the point? It's all about God. It always goes back to God. At every time, whether good or bad, do all things for the glory of God. We're always focusing and refocusing back up to who God is. That's how we stay on track. It's the whole purpose of all this stuff. Why were so many people showing up? Really, did word spread that fast from one guy being healed? I would suggest not. So what else has happened in this area that would have caused such a stir? Y'all remember the crazy naked demon guy? That story? Naked demon guy was the guy where he was living in the tombs and cutting himself and crying out and all that stuff and nobody could bind him with a chain and all that. And then he falls down before Jesus and then suddenly he's in his right mind. This is where all the the 2,000 demons come out and they go into the pigs and all that stuff. Y'all know that story. Well, sure enough, that guy was from here. And what's so wild about it is a while back, he wanted to go be a disciple with Jesus and Jesus shut him down and said, no, go home and tell everybody what I've done. That guy's been working a lot. Why? Because by the time Jesus gets back to the region, everybody's ready to go see the Messiah. The power of a testimony to go back and tell your people what God's done for you is incredible because it sets and it sows seeds. So when Jesus shows up again, they're ready to go. We must tell our story. It's, it's, it's critical. It's kind of God's plan. It says, now in those days, again, at the same time, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. So everyone's hanging out. They didn't know they were going to be there so long. They now don't have any food. Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and they have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they'll faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry. I love that phrase. I'm unwilling to let that need go on. Well, God, they're not going to die. Who said I was only concerned with only making sure that they have a meager living? No, 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 no. I'm unwilling for this need to continue. In other words, boys, do something about it. Fix it. And his disciples answered him, where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? Should not an alarm go off? (laughs) Didn't we just do this with the feeding of the 5,000? Oh, apparently not. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. Why? What does that have to do with it? You know, it's that. Okay. He's got to feed 4,000 people with seven loaves and two small fish. All right. Do I need to remind you of the obvious message, which is your inability in the hands of God is more than enough, right? I mean, that was kind of the point. And you're like, but I'm so inadequate. Then I guess God's going to get more glory. The more messed up and weak you are, the better he looks. So if you really feel messed up, yay. (laughs) All right. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground and he took the seven loaves and the fish and having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people and they set them before the crowds. Why do we have to spread the gospel? Why doesn't Jesus just rip open heaven and do it himself? Because he doesn't want to. Why do we got to pray over things? Why do we got to pray over healing? Why do we got to do this? If God wanted to heal him, he would have done it himself because that's how he wants to do it. I get he doesn't have to. No, of course, he didn't have to do a lot of things. He didn't have to rescue us, but he did. So what we do is we track with what God desires, not what has to be. How does God want it? God always plays this game of going, I'm going to give it to my church and my church is now going to give it to the people. That's how we do it. So you can be involved in this and know my love and see my power and bring me back the glory. That's how it works. It says... 
Uh, and he took the seven loaves and the fish, having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They set them before the crowds and they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over seven basketfuls. Those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. So that means it could have been 6,000, 8,000. And they sent them away. And after sending away the crowds, he immediately got in the boat with his disciples and went to the region and district of Magadan or Dalmanutha. What was this miracle? 4,000, 6,000, 8,000 people fed by this? And they picked up how many basketfuls left over? Seven. Remember last time that they picked up basketfuls? Those baskets were different than these baskets. Those baskets were personal baskets, foldable baskets, little tiny pitcher-shaped baskets that were made out of wicker. And everybody would kind of carry them. That was how you carried your kosher Jewish food so you didn't have to eat in the Gentile territory. How many disciples were there? Twelve. How many baskets did they pick up? 12. Are we all tracking on that? That was an individual thing for all of them. That was a little reference to Israel. Now we got seven baskets. Why? What does seven represent? Completion, perfection, wholeness. And it's not little individual baskets. It's big baskets, big enough for a guy to fit in. How do we know that? Because in the book of Acts, Paul gets lowered down over the wall in Damascus in one of them. So at least we know a guy can fit in it. So they had these big baskets and they got seven because God is now in a Gentile region saying, I have more than enough for the world. There's no one out there that I'm going to go, man, I was totally going to save you, but I ran out of grace last week. That's a drag. I don't have enough forgiveness for you. No, he's saying that, that because of who he is and the overabundance of who an infinite God in a limited world can do is that he has more than enough grace, more than enough salvation, more than enough forgiveness and mercy for the whole wide world. One commentator said this, I thought it was fascinating. He said, Jesus always ends with a meal. When he finishes the Galilee area, he feeds the 5,000. When he finishes the Gentile area, he feeds with the 4,000. When he finishes the Jerusalem area, he finishes with the Last Supper. And it made me think, well, that's fascinating because at the end of all time, we finish with the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's almost like God just celebrates and he goes, see, more than enough. I got you. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came and began to argue with him drag come on now we got all the religious leaders that are like i don't like how you're doing it blah 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 and they all come up from the jewish area and start attacking him in the gentile area and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven and he sighed deeply in the spirit and he answered them why does this generation seek a sign truly i say to you listen up this is deep no sign will be given to this generation. When it's evening, you say it's going to be fair weather for the sky is red. In the morning, you say it's going to be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. In other words, you all know the rules that a red sky at night, good. Red sky in the morning, bad. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And he left them and departed. What's the sign of Jonah? Does that mean Jesus has to get swallowed by a whale? No. How long was Jonah in the whale? And it was a big fish. I know. I get it. Three days. How long is Jesus going to be in the tomb? Three days. That's the sign. In other words, and these people will not ultimately understand me until I give them the true sign, which is I am the Messiah raised from the dead. That's the sign I'll give to you. I'm not proving anything else to you. And when he left them, he got into the boat again and went to the other side. When his disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. They only had one loaf with them in the boat. And Jesus cautioned them saying, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the the leaven or the yeast of Herod. And they began discussing it among themselves with one another saying, we didn't bring any bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, O you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 class, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. And he said, do you not yet understand? How is it that you fail to understand? I'm not talking about bread. 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not talking about bread, (laughs) but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. How come they couldn't understand what he was talking about? Because they were obsessed with their own problem. Dude, we don't have any bread. I mean, seriously, we're in Gentile territory. There is no Jewish bread store here. We have no bread. I don't know if you understand. That's a big deal. Uh, he's a rabbi. We've got to give him Jewish bread. We don't have any Jewish bread. We only brought one loaf. Man, I didn't know idea we were going to be out here this long. This is super weird. Now we totally failed him. And, and man, uh, you were supposed to bring the bread anyway, Simon. Dude, I wasn't supposed to bring bread. That was your job. And if Andrew wouldn't have eaten all the leftovers from the last time, we'd be fine. And they're all arguing about themselves, and he's trying to talk about something completely different. He's trying to talk about evil influence and all this stuff, about how yeast permeates the whole batch. And he's trying to go on and on, talking about something deep, and all they could worry about was their problem of bread. And he goes, guys, 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 stop. What is wrong with you? Don't you understand? There was only a little bit of bread, and I made a whole bunch of bread. And then there was a little bit of bread, and I made a whole bunch of bread. I've been breathing bread into existence. Why are you freaked out about bread? It's not a problem. How does this impact us? Doesn't this sound like our prayer lives? God, I just want to come to you today, but here's the deal. I totally messed up. I totally messed up. I don't even know why I can even talk to you right now. I don't even know if I should be talking to you. I mean, I feel really, really bad. And and before I even get started in talking about anything, I just got to humble myself. I just got to really talk. And you end up talking about yourself the entire time. And he's like, shh, listen to me. Okay, God, but let me explain something real quick. Before you get started, before you get started, there's some serious problems going on. They're like totally big. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm watching. Lord, I'm very inadequate. Yeah, I know. I made you. Lord, Lord, I'm not, I'm not telling you how to do your job. I'm not telling you how to do your job. I'm just saying that if I were you, right, this is how I would do it. And I just need to talk to you about that. Would you now? Shh, I'm trying to talk to you about something completely different. But God, this is kind of a big deal. No, it's not. I know you keep coming to me with the same prayer request over and over and over. And I get that. I'm telling you, pray and don't give up. Okay, but can we also pray about something else? Or do we get completely locked down with one issue, one problem, your one failure, your one baggage issue? Are you just going to play the same record over and over and over again when I'm trying to talk to you that I've covered that, I know about that, and actually I have a lot more for you than that? Why are we still addressing the same issue? Move on. Let's keep going. I got adventure for you. I got joy for you. I got mercy for you. I got forgiveness for you. I got all kinds of gifts for you. I have all kinds of stuff. Yes, I want you to pray about that. That's all right. But there's also other stuff. And when you become so obsessed about your one issue, you don't want to talk about anything else. And so I periodically come to you and I'm like, hey, can I tell you a secret about what's going on? Yeah, 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 yeah. Hold on a second. Let's talk about this other issue first. Shh. I'm trying to talk to you. Listen to me. Stop blocking me out. I close with this, this thought. Last night, I did not sleep almost all night. I was just awake. I was totally peaceful, but I was just laying there. And you know why? Because... I ate two Cinnabons and washed it down with Sprite right before I went to bed. Okay, so as far as medical advice, I'm just going to let you know that was a really stupid idea. Okay, but that's not the point. And it was not the big, huge ones. i gotta, I got to clear my name. It was the little baby guys, all right? Just letting you know, letting you know. That was it's still stupid. Okay, I'm laying there all night long, and I was like, well, since I can't sleep, I might as well pray. Right? I mean, this is a novel idea, right? So I'm laying there in bed, and it's hours, and I could barely pray because I couldn't get over myself. You guys, I had so many thoughts about what was wrong with the world and all the different problems and what's going on with me, and, and what about this? I'm going through all these different emotional roller coasters. And, I, and the whole time, I always start all these prayers of, Heavenly Father, I'm listening. Hey, real, 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 quick, real quick, before you get started. Um, and I would interrupt him. Okay, Lord, now, now, seriously, I'm totally listening. Okay, well, I, I thought of one other thing. That was my whole night. For like eight hours, I did that. 
just laying there and I can't get over myself. I can't get out of my own head. I can't talk about anything but me. And it was so embarrassing. What I'm saying is that God's not obsessed with what we're obsessed with. And God is bigger than us. He's got more plans than we have. He has more answers than we do. He has more power than we have. He's infinitely more creative than we'll ever be. And so, no, he's not obsessed with what we're obsessed about. Listen, there's a lot of voices that are going to come into your head from the outside, from the inside, that's going to diminish your faith. I need you to watch that. I need you to watch the distractions and all the stuff that keeps stealing you away from God. Because the Bible says we should take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Do not allow every thought that comes into your head to stick there. You may struggle with depression, but that does not mean that it is allowed to stay there and bring you hopelessness. You may wrestle like me with anxiety, but that does not mean that you allow it to chase you into hopelessness. It means that while you hurt and while you suffer, there's certain truths you lock down and you never give up. My God loves me. My God is for me. My God has beautiful plans for me. My God has already taken care of what really matters in this life. And whether I am fixed right here, right now in my physical does not tell me whether or not my God cares about me. You need to take those and lock it down. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's close in prayer. Yes. Heavenly Father, thank you for a walk through your word. Thank you for the reminder of, Father, that our baggage seems to really steal away a lot of your joy. A lot of the joy that we could have, we become so obsessed with analyzing and, and, and questioning and looking at our problems bigger than you. And Lord, would you just help re-rack our minds today? That Lord, when we walk out of here, we wouldn't just be filled up for a moment, but the Lord, that you begin to plug those little holes that we don't leak out on the way home. That Father, we might be able to be more excited for you for a longer period of time as we moment by moment keep re-engaging with you, not giving you up and leaving you at church, but engaging with you in community, engaging with you with other people, engaging with you in your word, engaging with you in our prayer time. And God, allow it to be a 24-7, 365 thing for us that we might know you more and worship you rightly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next time.